Let's get started. Genesis chapter 48. It's where we're going to be. And I, I lied a little bit. I mean, not intentionally, but just because if I told you 47 verse 29, you'd be like, oh, yeah. so 48, and then just go up the page a little bit. If you have a blue or white Bible like I got up here that we gave you, it's page 24. It's right at the top of the right-hand column on page 24. Uh, if you don't know, our church, Riverstone Chapel, is named from a passage in the book of Joshua. And uh, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, right, God creates all the planet Earth. It's awesome. Mankind messes it up three pages into your Bible. It's like mankind's like, hey, this is cool. We should screw it up. And they do. Uh, they turn their back on God. God's like, do this. Right? Now nah, we're going to do this other thing. And at that point, sin enters the world and breaks everything that God created. Nothing works like it was intended to work any longer. And so what happens from that point on is God comes down and he says, you need to follow all these rules and go to church all the time and give a whole bunch of your money to me. Otherwise, you're going to hell. Now, that's actually not what God said. Some of you think that, but that's not what's in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, God comes and says, I'm going to send a savior. And in his kind of explanation of what just happened to the world through sin and all this brokenness, he promises a savior to the woman. He says, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Basically, he's saying, I'm going to send someone that's going to fix all of this. And so fast forward to Genesis chapter 12, which we've been going through the book of Genesis. So we read, if you were with us, uh, God picks a man. His name is Abram. And God says, Abram, your family is going to be special because they're going to bring that savior of the world that I promised. And so for the rest of your Old Testament, we are following around this family. That's all it is. I mean, people go, like, oh, it's so confusing. It's not that confusing. I mean, not any more confusing than your family is confusing, right? God just picked his family, and they're following. he's following them around because this guy named Jesus is going to come from this family. Now, this family grows and grows and grows into the nation of Israel, and God actually promised Abram a land for his family to live in and, you know, super intuitive way to name it. He calls it the promised land, right? So I promised them a land, so we'll call it that. And once they get into the promised land for the very first time in the book of Joshua, they walk across the Jordan River and the Jordan River denotes the barrier uh, into the promised land. So as soon as they get across, they're in the promised land for the very first time. And God says, go take some stones out of this river and stack them in the promised land so that when your children ask their fathers, what do these stones mean in the time to come? You tell them. You tell them how good God was. You tell them how God brought you out of slavery. You tell them how God changed your life. You tell them how God gave you freedom. You tell them how God provided in the desert. You tell them how God made a way when it wasn't, when it looked like there was no way. You tell them how God got you through the difficulty. You tell them how God has seen you to this moment and made good on his promise. You tell them how God has done what he said he was going to do. And at the end of that, it says, so that all the world may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And that's the picture. That's why we call it Riverstone Chapel. So when our kids or our friends or our family or your neighbor or whomever asks you why your life looks the way it looks, you tell them. You tell them. And it's not more complicated than that. And we get this incredible picture of the testimony of the goodness of God handed down from generation to generation to generation as children continue to ask their fathers or their mothers. I mean, I'm not trying to be sexist here. It just happens to use the word fathers in the passage. 
What, are these, what does this mean? Why are we doing this? And today in Genesis chapter 48, this is the exact picture that we see. The testimony is passed on from one generation to the next. And so Jacob, who we've been following around, and at this point in the story is on his deathbed. He's about 137 years old. He knows he's about to die. And before he goes, he wants to impart something to his favorite son, Joseph. And that's where we pick it up. Genesis chapter 47, verse 29. It says this, and when the time came and when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So Jacob asked his favorite son, Joseph, for one thing before he dies. Now, this is not uncommon. There's a lot of crazy requests that people have uh, when they die or when they're about to die, right? Take care of my dog, like look after your mother, right? You know, don't let the house go to waste. I don't know. Like people ask all this stuff when they're about to die. It's, it's not an unusual thing like we see here. In fact, um, maybe 10 years ago. I don't know. I'm getting old. So all the years blend together. Amen, anybody? So uh, a while ago, I was coaching football in Colorado and we had a pretty good team. I was a high school football coach and uh, we ended up making it to the state championship one year. And as we go to the state championship, it's at Mile High Stadium, right? Where the Denver Broncos play, which it was really cool. And usually we get to the stadium a couple hours early. And the first thing we do when we get to the stadium is we walk out on the field, right? So we get to the stadium. I'm stoked. We're in Mile High Stadium, right? This, at the time, Peyton Manning was playing for him and they just won the Super Bowl. So I'm like hanging out next to Peyton's locker, you know, like just thinking I'm the coolest and I'm about to walk out on the field and there's these giant security guards who could definitely beat me up and they're like, you can't go on the field. I was like, oh, why can't we go on the field? And so um, I was like, yeah, but that's for like kids. I thought they didn't want the kids going on the field because they'd like dig a hole at, you know, the 50 yard line or something stupid like kids do. I was like, I'm a coach. Like I got tennis shoes on. I'm not going to mess it up. I just want to see the field and like walk. And usually as the coaches, we would pray over the field and stuff. And the guy was like, nope, you're not going on the field for no reason. And I was like, oh, well, why not? And so I was like sitting there. So I took my little selfie and sent it to my wife. I was like, we're here and did the whole thing. And then I started talking to the guy. I was like, how come they don't let anybody on the field? And he goes, you would be surprised how many people want to scatter their dead relatives' ashes on the field at Mile High Stadium. And I was like, that's why you don't let people? He's like, yeah, people do it all the time. They try and sneak onto the field and scatter Uncle Fred at the 50-yard line or in the end zone or wherever. They're, like all the time, people are trying to get on the field or they try to take the tour and then they're trying to sprinkle dust in the back and you're like, hey, stop that. So that's, that's his reason. He's like, you get on the field one hour before kickoff, no earlier because we don't want dead people on the field, right? <laughs> Which I, I, I never thought of that. I was like, oh, good point. I probably wouldn't want to be walking in dead people if I was playing football either. So... People have been doing this forever, right? These weird kind of requests at the end of their life. But Jacob's is kind of super weird, right? Jacob cares about where his body ends up, not because he's a Broncos fan or a Seahawks fan or football or whatever, but Jacob ends, cares about where his body ends up, not just because he thinks it would be cool to be scattered in some cool place, 
but Jacob is connecting himself and his life to what God is doing in the world. Remember that plan we talked about? Remember when God said, I'm sending a savior, and then he picked Abram, and he said, your family's going to bring forth that savior, and it's going to be in this land, and your family's going to live in this land? Well, that land is back in Canaan, which in modern-day Israel. And remember, Jacob and Joseph are now living in Egypt. So as Jacob is about to die, he says, no, 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 don't. Take my body back. Take my body back to the promised land. Bury it there. Don't let it be buried here. And in, in a way, he's saying to his son, remember where we've come from. Remember what God's doing on planet Earth. Remember that God picked our family. Remember that God said this was our home, that this was the promised land. And so for Jacob to say, bury me there is basically for him to say, I remember what God is doing on planet Earth, and I want to be a part of that. And it would have been really easy for Jacob to forget that. It would have been really easy for Jacob to enjoy all the good things of the land of Egypt and the privilege and the abundance. It would have been really easy for him to say, you know what? I like it here. This is pretty cool. I'm comfortable living here. I'm, I'm cool with how it's turned out. But he'd probably live in a mansion. Remember, his son Joseph is second in command in the entire nation of Egypt. A nation of Egypt is like the most powerful nation on planet Earth at this time. The Egyptian Empire, like, it's huge, massive, powerful. Like, and he's second in command of the whole thing. So he's probably doing pretty well. They're probably not living in a cardboard box down by the, the gutter, right? That's what I'm saying. And jo Jacob could have easily been like, I kind of like this. This has worked out better than I thought. This is more comfortable than where we came from. But he doesn't do that. What he does is he says to his son, promise me. Promise me you won't leave me here. And functionally, what he's doing is saying, I haven't forgotten what God is doing here, and you don't forget what God is doing here either. I haven't forgotten what God's plan for our family is, and you don't forget what God's plan for our family is either. It's like saying, hey, Joseph, this is cool, you running the world and all, in your mansion, your white picket fence, your 2.4 kids, and your lake house, and, and all the cool stuff that you have uh, in the situation that you're currently in. But let's keep the main thing the main thing, Joseph. Let's not forget why we're here. Let's not forget what God is doing. And so Jacob saying that is kind of like him saying, I'm keeping the main thing the main thing, son. Bury me there. And you keep the main thing the main thing, too. And when I say that, you all nod your head. And yet it's deceptively hard to keep the main thing the main thing, right? We all think we do. Like, ah, if I wasn't, I'd know it. No, you wouldn't. There's generation after generation after generation of people who get distracted and sidetracked and look at the next shiny thing and a few things start going your way and you get a little comfort and you're like, oh, this is, this is pretty nice. And they start pursuing something that is not God's plan for the world. Like, we need to reset. That's part of the reason you probably came here this morning, to, to have the word of God reveal your heart. And you're like, oh, I've been off, right? And it's not just for you. It's for me, too. As I read through, I'm going, oh, dang, I got distracted. Sometimes we need to reset to, to remember what God is doing on planet Earth, what he is accomplishing through us, not forgetting why God chose us, why God brought us here, why he wrote his word. And I pointed out because it's real easy to underestimate how we get distracted, 
How often? Jesus actually said it this way. When this kind of things happens, when you get distracted, when you don't keep the main thing, the main thing, he says, you gain the world, but you lose your soul. Think about that. You gain the world. That's a terrible trade, if you didn't know, to gain the world and lose your soul. That's what happens when you don't keep the main thing, the main thing. And Jacob here is telling his son, don't, don't get drunk on this comfort. Don't, don't get distracted by this ease. God didn't need the opulence of the nation of Egypt to accomplish his plans for the earth, Joseph. God, God didn't need you living in a mansion to save souls, to bring forth the Savior. Re remember what the main thing is, Joseph. And here's where I'm about to step on some toes right now. You ready? You ready for this? This is going to be great. Since we're talking about keeping the main thing the main thing, it's real easy to get distracted in election year, right? It's real easy to make something else the main thing. And can I tell you, politics for a Christian is not the main thing. Somebody say amen, even if you're mad at me. Politics for a Christian is not the main thing. It's not a quiz. It's the truth, right? God doesn't need, think about this now. You can be mad at me if you want. God doesn't need your political party's person in the White House to accomplish his will. He doesn't. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need your help. He's not like, man, I hope Stephen votes for the right guy, or I don't know how I'm going to save the world. This is going to be crazy, right? <laughs> like, that's God, like, and we get so fired up. And if you're looking at your life, and the most fired up you've been over the last four years is about something about politics and not about Jesus, you might want to evaluate that. You might want to evaluate that. I'm not going to spend a whole series on it. I know there's lots of churches that do that, but I am going to point out, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. That's what Jacob is doing here at the end of his life. He's saying, hey, don't, don't leave me here. This has been nice. This has been great. I'm, I'm grateful that God allowed me to experience this. But let's get back to why we're here, why we're on planet Earth, why God chose our family, the salvation of the world and the promised land. Take me home, son. Bury me there and promise me that. And look at verse 1 of chapter 48. It says, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to you and your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. And as for me, when I came to, from Paddan, to, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. That was his first wife, if you remember, on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So old man Jacob does this weird thing, right? He's grandpa Jacob now. And Grandpa Jacob does this weird thing. He says, God promised me this land, and he gave it to me, and I'm giving it to my sons and your two oldest boys, Joseph. I am going to make a part of my inheritance in the promised land that God promised me in Canaan. So I know I got, 
I got 12 sons, but Joseph, you're, you're not part of the inheritance. You stay in Egypt, but your two sons are now in part of my inheritance. And they're going to be in, and I'm going to give them a part of the promised land back in Israel. <coughs> if you're Ephraim and Manasseh, think about what just happened here. This is bizarre, right? Think about it. You're, I mean, there's probably not two more privileged kids like on planet Earth at the time. Like they're the sons of the second most powerful person in Egypt. I mean, they're probably living a pretty good life, right? They're probably having lunch with the Pharaoh in the palace every once in a while, right? They're like, they know all the most powerful people. They probably live, like I said, in a nice place, right? They have everything the world has to offer at this point in life. And then they have this reuniting with their grandpa, uh, Jacob, right? So crazy grandpa Jacob moves into the attic or something like that. I don't know exactly how it works, but they have this reuniting. It goes 17 years go by. So they're probably at the, the very least like late teenagers, probably like in their 20s at this point. Grandpa Jacob calls them in. He's about to die. And they have everything the world wants to give them, right? They, they're wealthy, powerful, successful, living the dream in Egypt. And Jacob says, no, no, no. You don't want any of that Egypt inheritance. You want the inheritance I have to give you. And you're like a 23-year-old kid going, what inheritance do you have, Jacob? In, in the promised land, back in Canaan. What, what, what promise? Like you don't even live there. Like You're giving me something you don't even have. Like crazy grandpa just told me that he gave me some land somewhere that I don't know what it is and we, he doesn't even live there or own it or have a title or a deed or anything. If you're from a master, you're like, uh, okay. So my dad's the second most powerful person in the entire nation of Egypt and I could have his inheritance, which is maybe this house, maybe the money that's in the bank, maybe the crops that are in the field, the livestock, the land, maybe, maybe the cars. I don't know, he's got a Range Rover or something. Or I could have crazy grandpa Jacob's inheritance, which is somewhere over the rainbow, right? Like we don't even know. And we have these two competing inheritance. One that is in Egypt by sight and one that is promised back in the land of Canaan. And the only assurance that they have it at all is because God said it. You see the competing inheritances here? They live in the house they could probably get from their dad, Joseph. They probably are surrounded by the property in the inheritance in Egypt. They're probably like, this is our home. This is great. We grew up here. This is incredible. We're wealthy and successful. Why would we leave this? And Jacob says, I know why you'd leave it. Because God said. Because God said. And there's this interesting dilemma presented to these boys, right? They have an inheritance they can see in the land of Egypt that won't last, or they have this inheritance they can't see. But God said it'll last forever. I've been doing this thing for a while, right? And I could just, like, so often we have Christians that say they live by faith, and then they walk by sight, and it's super easy to do, right? It's super easy to be like, no, no, I walk by faith. Like, what was the last thing you trusted God for? Uh, right? And like, 
Like, it's just our culture, right? And sometimes you need to be like aware of that. Like, oh yeah, I don't do anything that requires faith. I mean, for some of you coming to church this morning required faith and because and, there's coronavirus and you're like, I don't know who's gonna be wearing a mask and who they're touching and if they're gonna bump me or whatever, right? So good for you. Some of you like, this is a real thing and I'm, I'm super glad you're here, right? But for the most part, lots of us, don't do anything that's actually by faith, that actually requires us to trust God. Like where if God didn't come through, we would be in a really bad spot. It's kind of like Jacob is saying, I've been doing this life thing for 137 years, and you know where I'm at now, and the place where I believe something just because God said it's true. Think about that. Think about that. If you talk to Jacob now at the end of his life, how old are you, Jacob? 137 years old. Tell me one thing that you've learned over 137 years. I believe the things that God says just because he said it. Just because he said it. Well, what other evidence do you have? That's it. Just because he said it. And some of you hear that and say, well, that's stupid. Why would they do that? You need to have something you can count on. And, and, and I would say, no, it's not stupid. It's actually awesome. It's awesome to get the end of your life and believe God just because he said it. There are these type of people that God uses to change the world. These are the kinds of people who live their lives believing in the goodness of God and walking by faith that find the purpose and meaning of life. That thing that Jesus was talking about, I've came to give you life and life more abundantly, life overflowing, life beyond the limitations that you currently understand them as because they believe God just because he said it. And hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, there would be an author that would be writing the book of Hebrews that's in your Bible, and he would start to write about faith and start to write about people who believe in God just because he said it. And he started listing all these people, and it's incredible person after incredible person, an incredible act of faith after incredible act of faith. And, and Christians over the years have kind of nicknamed that part of your Bible, the Hall of Faith. Right, which is just because of our name of it, because it's all these names of people who did incredible things by faith. And there's like Moses crossing the Red Sea and, and Enoch, and he got raptured. And then we got, um, who else do we have? David and Goliath. And like there's, there's all these incredible people, Noah building the ark, and then Abraham leaving his homeland. And then right in the middle of the chapter, guess who's there? Jacob. And what was the great, incredible thing that Jacob did that showed his faith? What was the thing that, that this author looked back and goes, oh my gosh, that guy was incredible in the way he believed in God and trusted in God. This is what he said, Hebrews eleven twenty one, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. He says that was incredible faith. To be living in an inheritance you could see and still pointing to the inheritance that God promised. This incredible act of faith in Jacob's life was to look at his grandsons and say, don't forget, guys. Don't forget whatever shiny thing Egypt is trying to distract you with. It's nothing compared to the things that God has promised you. Don't get hung up with how things look, Ephraim and Manasseh, the way things appear. Don't, don't get hung up on what makes sense to you. You trust God because that's what makes life worth living. And that's the inheritance he gives to these boys. And then while Jacob is saying this to Joseph about his two sons being included in the inheritance, it's almost like halfway through, he becomes aware that these two boys are actually standing there. 
Like, he, he wasn't aware of it before because we're going to be told he's blind, right? So he thought he was just talking to Joseph. He's like, who's these two boys? So look at verse uh, 10. No, verse 8. I lied. Verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Not because he didn't know his grandkids, uh, but because he was blind, right? And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I might bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought him, them near to him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. I'm going to pause right here because I love this grateful heart of Jacob. He goes, you know what? I didn't even have ever expect to see your face again, Joseph. And now I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your kids. I'm knowing your family. I have grandkids from Joseph, whom I never expected to see again. This is incredible. And it's, it's like an incredible grateful heart. It could be glass half empty instead of glass half full, right? He could be like, I still can't believe your brothers lied to me and they robbed me of 20 years of your life and not getting to see you for 22 decades. Like, he doesn't do that. He's grateful. He could be bitter still, but he's not. He's grateful. And I think it's important to point out, like, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Like, they, I'm not saying you have to pretend, but there should be some gratefulness that comes in your understanding of how God is, right? There should be some understanding of his goodness and not just glass half empty all the time. You should celebrate the things that he's doing. And that's what Jacob is doing here. He's celebrating that he gets to see his son again, whom he thought he would never see again. And I point this out because I'm confessing to you guys right now. I completely fail at this all the time. And I had a big one uh, a couple weeks ago. We found out we were going to get the building back. We were very excited. So we got our leadership team together at the church. And we were like, OK, let's come up with a really great plan about how things are going to look when we get back into the building. And so we were talking. And we're like, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And we're going to try this. And all that went out the window because the TVs don't work and, you know, batteries are broken, whatever. But anyway, we spent this whole time and we got done. And uh, I was reading my Bible the next morning and God was like, you didn't even celebrate any of the things I did all summer. You didn't take one moment to acknowledge and celebrate what I just did. Now, if you don't know, if you weren't with us all summer long, we met in the park. Uh, we had uh, somebody interrupting us for some reason or another almost every week. I think it was like eight out of 10 weeks that we were there. We had guys taking pictures, mad mask guy, whom like eight of you sent me text message back of you took a picture of him. You're like, this is the guy. I'm like, so I'm grateful for you guys, neighborhood watch church folks. And then there was a guy like doing calisthenics with his chainsaw. There was a guy with a, a megaphone. They called the cops on us one time. And the cops were like, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. So like over and over and over. And all this in spite of the fact that none of the other churches that I know that don't have a building in Spokane actually met this summer. Like we were the only one that we were able to meet. Praise God for that. And we reached people. People walked up to the park and the Holy Spirit was like, hey, there's a church in Manitou. You need to go. Right. And people came and they're like, what is this? It's Jesus. That's what it is. Right. You bet. Just saved. And so like people came to our church. We continue to meet. And like I said, we are launching the biggest quarter of small groups we've ever had as a church this fall. That's incredible. Right. And I, I missed all of it. 
I didn't celebrate one thing. I was like, what, where, where should we put the chairs when we go back into the building? Like, that's what I was worried about. And God's like, you idiot. I just did something awesome celebrating. And I think sometimes we just skip over that too fast, right? We don't take time to celebrate. This is part of the Christian life is we remember and celebrate the things that God has done. And I love that Jacob is doing that at the end of his life. He's not just telling Joseph, hey, okay, so when you bury me, I want you to dig it real deep. No, he says, oh, man. Like, I didn't ever see, think I was going to see you again. And now I get to see my grandkids. Like, this is incredible. And look at verse 12. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward his left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought him near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you rather to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So Grandpa Jacob here, blind as a bat, sitting there, where is these boys? I want to bless them. So Joseph brings the boys over, but Joseph knows the culture. And the culture is that whoever's born first is a really big deal. And whoever gets the firstborn blessing, that's a really big deal. And so in that culture, the right hand was the symbol of power and strength and authority and preference. And so Joseph gets his oldest boy, Manasseh, over here on his left, because when Jacob reaches out, it's going to be his right hand that's blessing his oldest boy, Manasseh. And so he gets him over there, and then he gets Ephraim on the other side to get the left hand, and he brings him forth, and crazy old Grandpa Jacob crosses his hands and puts it, and Joseph's like, Ugh. right, you ever do that to your grandpa or something? Why are you doing that? What are you doing? Right? So he goes to move his hand, and like old man strength, Jacob's like, no, I know what's going on. God is doing this on purpose. And it gives us this incredible picture. It's just this, this subtle reminder. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. Does anybody else here need to be reminded of that some, from time to time? So it's like you're like, what is happening, right? Something happens in your life and you thought it was going to go this way. It didn't go this way. And like, like I, what do you, I, do you not, are you paying attention? Like, were you not, did you not see what just happened to me? God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing when he called you to what he called you to. God knows what he's doing when he put that conviction in your heart. 
Yeah, it doesn't have to make sense to you. It has to make sense to him. Right? And we know from more reading of the scripture that God does the things that he does because he wants the best for you. So maybe it's to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe it's to walk through some difficulty. Maybe it's to push through something that's uncomfortable that you didn't see coming. And then as you push through that, he reveals more of himself to you. And so you come out the other side knowing him in a deeper and greater way. Don't, don't ever forget this. I know it's a small point. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. I'll finish with this. It's my last point. It's only 25 minutes long, so it'll be short. I'm joking. (laughs) Look at what Jacob blesses his grandson with. Look at verse 15. He says, God who has been my shepherd all my life. You want to know what the secret is, boys? God has been with me. Now, don't miss this, right? Don't miss this. His son, Joseph, is wealthy and powerful and successful. And these are probably two of the most privileged boys, like we said, in the entire world at the time. And Jacob's blessing is not, I hope you get all the stuff you want. I hope God comes through in all the ways you want him to come through. I hope God makes your life easy in all the ways you want your life to be easy. No, that's not what Jacob blesses these boys with. Jacob says, God has been with me, and I pray he's with you. It's not honor God so you have a good life. It's honor God so that you know God. And because you know God, your life will be incredible. See, we don't honor God to get stuff. We honor God because the reward is knowing God. You see that? You see the blessing they just gave? He didn't say, hey, I hope you get everything. He's like, no, no, honor God. And if you get God, then your life is a win. If you know him at the end of it, that's the thing you need. Not stuff, not power, not privilege, not inheritance even. You need God. At the end of the day, that's what's going to make your life worth living. We don't follow God to get stuff. We follow God to get God. And then we come to the end of our lives, we can look back on our story with incredibly grateful hearts and say, like Jacob did, he's been my shepherd all the days of my life. All the days of my life, all the day long to this day. He's been there the whole time. He never left. He never walked away. He never turned his back. He never forgot about me, no matter how hard it got or how far off the rails I was. He never gave up on me. He kept pursuing me, kept guiding me, kept proving himself faithful and true. So we get this incredible picture, incredible picture of a man who wasn't perfect by any means, but who walked by faith all the way up until his final moments. And man, I pray that that's us someday. Amen? Is there people in this room who want to get to the end and say, I believe what God says just because he said it, and God has been with me the entirety of my life? I hope so. I hope so, because if your hope is in anything else, it's going to let you down. It's going to let you down in a major way. Let's pray.